Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Brandon Billups, and I'm a high school pastor here at Rolling Hills. In today's message, we're bringing our series, Jesus, Life-Changing Conversations, to a close with Easter Sunday. Today, you'll hear from Pastor Nick as we celebrate Jesus' resurrection and explore the last of Jesus' conversations that we're focusing on this series. Now, let's hear from Pastor Nick. It's like Nick Allen level of strength today, which I'm super excited about. I hope that you are too. I'm glad that you're here. Happy Easter. I want to ask you a question, and maybe we can look around in a crowd this size and and kind of make eye contact with some folks, and maybe you'll even meet somebody new before you go home today. And and I would love that because we want nothing more than as a church to be a community, a family, um, friends, uh, people who are connected with one another. And so what's your name, right? Think about it. And, And does it mean anything? Not necessarily did you know the etymology of it, like where it came from and like what it means because of some sort of historical ancient truth, but like what does it mean to you to have your specific name? So my name is Nick, which automatically means you know that it's short for something else. It's actually Nicholas. Nicholas uh, is it's a Greek word and it literally means, I love this, hold on, it means victory of the people. So I can imagine like some kind of like ancient Greco-Roman battle where like the people are like charging the field and they're going out and they're so celebratory and they're excited about victory and people are just like charging the other army front going, Nicholas! Like so excited because victory is going to be theirs, right? Now, I remember growing up and lots of people had nicknames and that was such a cool thing. Like everybody went by something. I had friends named Slim and Bucket. Those were clearly not their given names, but that's what we called them. And it, it, it meant something to who they were. And I always, always wanted a nickname. And I remember being at places like summer camp and everybody was like going around the circle and the camp leader would say, okay, everybody's going to tell like your name. And if you have like a nickname that you go by, say what that is, because that's what we're going to call you all week at camp. And it would get to me and I'd be so disappointed because my name was Nicholas. And I would basically just say, My name is Nicholas. I'm the reason why people have nicknames, and um, I don't really get one that means anything because I'm just Nick, and that was kind of fun. I remember when I finally started, like, telling people Nick instead of Nicholas, and and when I started writing Nick on my paper instead of Nicholas. Like, my mother is probably the only person on the planet that calls me that, by the way. So, like, I would write Nick, and my name, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, it didn't have a K in it. And people automatically assume that when you go by Nick that there's an N-I-C-K, and I'm just like, hold up. If the purpose is to shorten your name, why are you going to add a letter that wasn't there to begin with? Like, that just makes it unnecessarily longer. And it's also kind of an insult to the C. Like, C, you're not good enough to make the K sound all by yourself, so we're going to have to add a K. Like, the C can stand alone. It's a good letter. So N-I-C is typically what I go by, and I'm excited about the idea of how you have a name. And it probably means something somewhere. You could Google it and find out what the literal meaning of your name is. But it also, it means something to you. And the people who are around you, we encounter a guy today because we've been looking at these conversations in Scripture. And and the guy that we encounter today, his name is Nicodemus, which literally means, just like me, victory of the people. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn to John chapter 3. When you're naming kids, like you want to give them a name that means something good, right? So our little boy's name is Simon. Um, And it means he who hears. And what parent does not want their child to be somebody who listens? I was like, this is a great name for a child. Let's just hope that it comes true in life. And his middle name is James, which is a family name from a lot of us dudes in his history. And so we picked the life verse, James 1.22 for Simon. And it says, do not merely listen to the word. Do not merely Simon the word and deceive yourselves. 
do what it says. So our prayer for him his whole life is that he would be somebody who, who hears the word of God, but also follows the word of God. And that's the story that we encounter today of a guy named Nicodemus in scripture. We'll start in chapter three, right at verse one, and then we'll break apart several portions of it as we get to the most famous verse in scripture that you may be able to recite this morning, John three sixteen. It says in verse one, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, victory of the people, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And so this is like a basic description of this guy. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That that put him in a designated class of, of like the moral majority, the people who were in charge of making sure that everybody in the community followed the law to the letter of what God had said in the Old Testament. His name was Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And some of your Bibles are going to say this morning, the Sanhedrin, or some of your Bibles are going to say that all over other places. And maybe you've heard that, especially as we approach Easter week. And we know that Jesus was held in a trial and that members of the Pharisees and members of the Sanhedrin and members of the high priest council are coming in and they're inquiring about Jesus and wanting to crucify him. This group of Sanhedrin, every town had one. Every major city had a, it was either composed of 23 men or 71 men, all leaders in the community. And it was their responsibility to make sure that people followed the Jewish law. They were the ruling class. The word Sanhedrin means sitting together. So that's where you get the idea of an assembly or a council, people who are gathered together to make decisions. This first sentence in John chapter 3 reads like a Twitter bio. Just that one little sentence that kind of tells who you are. He's a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council. My Twitter bio says, um, Christ following husband to Sue Allen 610 with three amazing kiddos, campus pastor at RHCC Nashville. Both of it. Like it just tells a little bit about who I am. Instagram is a little more fun. It says, Christ following husband, father, pastor, attempted author, and unlikely marathon runner, because that's true, but you wouldn't guess it by looking at me today. Like, what is your bio? What is that one sentence that can kind of sum up who you are? Consider for a moment that social bio that you put out in the world and what it really says about you. What do you you lead with? Well, I'm an accountant. Well, that's fun. Congratulations. You're real busy this time of year. Or, or, or I'm, a, I'm a nurse, we're thankful for you. Or, or I'm a teacher, good job. I'm, a, I'm a, a husband or a wife or a mother or a father or a sister or a brother or a friend. What is that bio about you and what does it say about who you are to other people? What's your name? What does it mean? Who are you at your core? So Nicodemus, verse 2, it says he, he came to Jesus at night. And that nighttime uh, uh, piece of detail that Scripture gives us is really, really important because at night it was under the cloak of darkness. This is a guy that did not want to be seen because he was a Pharisee and he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He didn't want to be seen in a one-on-one conversation with Jesus. And so he did it in a way that nobody would notice. He didn't want to gain the negative watchful eye of the Pharisees who wanted to know, why are you hanging out with him? They were already worried about who Jesus associated himself with. Fishermen, dirty people, sinners, women, gentle. There's a lot of people that Jesus was associated with that they didn't. Tax collectors, other folks. So Nicodemus went at night not to be seen by Jesus. And he began laying on compliments. He says, Rabbi, that's a kind, respectful term. Rabbi, we we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He lays it on thick. You're rabbi. You're a teacher. You are someone who we clearly see because of the signs that you're doing. You must have come from God. 
There's a lot of people that think that Jesus is a really good teacher, a, a really good person, somebody that's associated with God. And we got to be real careful in treading these waters because just because you recognize Jesus, just because you recognize Jesus and even admire Jesus does not mean that you know Jesus. Just because you recognize Jesus, just because you even admire Jesus, does not mean that you know Jesus. In essence, that's, that's a little bit about what we call this idea of cultural Christianity. You know, cultural Christianity is practiced by more Americans than any other faith or religion and is probably the most dangerous thing for Christianity. Wait a minute, Nick. You think cultural Christianity is the most dangerous thing for real Christianity? How are you going to say that? Isn't radical Islam the most dangerous thing for Christianity? Isn't the breakdown of marriage and family and morality in our country, isn't that the most dangerous thing for Christianity? What about like abortion or partisan politics or anything that's like the media? That is definitely the most dangerous thing against real Christian. Nope. Most dangerous thing, combating the idea of following Jesus Christ is a false sense of knowing and following Jesus Christ. There's a guy named Dean and Sarah, and I've talked about him before. He wrote a book called Unsaved Christians. It's all about cultural Christianity. David Platt calls it the idea of practical atheism. It's somebody that says with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but lives every portion of their life as if he doesn't even exist. You just call on him in a moment of crisis, or you just visit with him two days out of the year. Help, welcome to Easter. Welcome to Christmas. But the rest of the time, it's like he doesn't even exist. And Sarah writes in his book, Cultural Christianity Admires Jesus certainly recognizes Jesus, admires Jesus, but doesn't really think that Jesus is needed except to take the wheel in a moment of crisis. He says that cultural Christians can be found in both Catholics and Protestants in the South and in the Midwest and the Northeast alike in football fields and definitely in patriotic celebrations and family tables, but it's only Christian by culture and not Christian by conviction. And that's not new to us, and it shouldn't even surprise us, because Jesus said these words himself in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and and, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Didn't we recognize you, and didn't we admire you? Like, didn't we say twice a year on Easter and Christmas that you're so good and that we love you? Didn't we come and pay our respect every single Sunday morning? Didn't we even put money in a basket when it went by? Didn't we say grace before meals? Didn't we check the Christian bubble on the census every time we did it? Didn't we tell our children to not lie, not steal, and to respect us? Because, you know, that's a big one. Didn't we do all these things? And then Jesus says to them in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 23, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wait a minute, hold up. We gotta, like, we gotta take a pause with this whole talk about evildoers because people do not want to hear that, right? Like, you, you live your whole life and your grandma sings a song to you when you're first born that says, Look all the world over, there's no one like you. No one like you. No, look all the world over. There's no, no one exactly like. That's what my grandmother sang to me. It made me feel special. It made me feel one of a kind. She told me I was awesome. Like every time she sees me, she says, I'm totally her favorite, right? 
So we grow up with this idea of like, you are so special. You're the most important thing in the world to me. You're the best thing ever. And then all of a sudden our children grow up and are confronted with the truth. No, actually everything that we said to you about how you are amazing in every single way, shape, and form really just boils down to the fact that you're a dirty, rotten sinner conceived in sin and you walk in sin. It's your very nature. And you actually are in desperate need of forgiveness, son. Everything about you is is ultimately the, the hallmark of cultural Christianity or even comfort with biblical principles. It's, it's this idea that like I'm, I'm super comfortable with the Bible, but I don't recognize my personal need for salvation, for forgiveness. People claim Christianity just because they like the way that Jesus sounds, or they like the community that they get to be a part of, or they like the way that this feels, or ultimately this faith was somehow passed down to them from the generation that came before them, and it's not because they recognize their deep-seated personal need for forgiveness and salvation. They don't recognize that their position in life is total separation from God. This idea of evildoers in Matthew chapter 7 means to practice lawlessness. To practice lawlessness. It's those who sin and fall short. So it says in in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. People aren't sinners because they sin. They sin because they're sinners. They're not sinners because they sin. They sin because it's the core of who we are. It's an important distinction. It's our our nature. And what we need to recognize is that without salvation that comes from God, we're doomed to spend eternity apart from God. And and so to Nicodemus, Jesus paints a picture of of a better future, a, a way to right standing before God and eternity with God. It says in verse 3, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. No one can sit in the presence of God. No one can enter into heaven with God unless they are born again. And this is when it gets really confusing. And Nicodemus, this, this, this theological leader, begins to take Jesus very literally. And he starts asking, someone has to be born again? Am I literally going to come a tiny little fetus and come out of my mother one more time? Like, that's so weird, Jesus. What are you actually talking about? Jesus is painting a picture of what it means to be part of God's family, to have right standing with him. It literally means starting over. The idea of being born again is translated in some of your scriptures as born from above, from a new place, from a position of new standing with God. In cultural Christianity, it's commonplace for for people just to assume because they were were born into a Christian family or they have a Christian mother or a Christian grandmother that all of a sudden they're a Christian too. A legacy of faith, a, a legacy of faith needs to be celebrated But inherited faith is not faith. That individual has to come to the realization that without the forgiveness of God, through the bloodshed of Jesus, there is no standing with God. The Pharisees, Nicodemus was one. It says uh, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Victory of the people. They were desperate. They were desperate to maintain right standing before God. 
And they thought that that happened through uh, observing the Old Testament law. And so they were so desperate to make sure that they did not violate any sort of portion of the law, they would build fences or hedges around all of those pieces of law. So if you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, then they sought to define work. Of the 613 commands in the Old Testament law, they added thousands and thousands of layers to it so that you couldn't take that many steps carrying your water jar on a Sunday, Sabbath. So you would take a couple of steps and then you would have to put that water jar down and then somebody else in your family would have to pick up that water jar and take the rest of the steps because you couldn't be caught taking too many steps with your water on the Sabbath because it was a violation of the law of God and it would eliminate your right standing before God. The Pharisees, as much of a bad rap as they get in Scripture, were ultimately people who had a good goal. They wanted to protect God's law and maintain a position of right standing with God. But Jesus looks at them, Matthew chapter 23, and he says, Whoa, hold up. Woe to you people, you Pharisees. You, you tie up these heavy burdens on people's back. You make it difficult for them to see God, you love the place of honor. You want everybody to see how good you are so they can recognize how close you are to God. Woe to you Pharisees. Jesus calls them hypocrites over and over and over again. He says, you tithe on your mint and your dill and your cumin. Spices were important back then. You tithe on your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you've neglected really important things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe, Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you guys. You're like whitewashed tombs. You have a clean outside of the dish, but on the inside, you're, you're super, super dirty. The core of Nicodemus's life was that spiritual practices were not enough. Those outside practices weren't enough. He needed an internal spiritual transformation. So do we. Jesus says in verse 5, Very truly, I tell you, nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What? born of water and of spirit. This is a spiritual thing, Nicodemus. This isn't about the physical thing of observing the law that you've been doing. This is certainly not about the physical thing of you becoming a tiny little fetus again and coming out of your mother one more time because that would be super strange. This is not about that physical act. It's about a spiritual transformation. Ultimately, it's about believing, which is more than what you think it is. When it's real, Believing always leads to following. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Nicodemus didn't really get the whole born again thing. Jesus goes on to say, hey, you're Israel's teacher. Why don't you, why don't you get this? You do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. Verse 12, he says, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, that's Jesus. He says, just as, then he goes on to this Old Testament. Hey, you understand the Old Testament? Let me give you a, a picture of the Old Testament. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, you can read about that story. It's crazy. It's in Numbers chapter 21. Apparently, the people were disobedient, and so God sent this fiery serpent to like slither through town, and if they ever got bit by the serpent, they would die. And so Moses, in order to save the people, set up a bronze serpent on a pole, and if you got bit and you were about to die, you could literally look at the bronze serpent on the pole, and you would be healed from the infer. It's a crazy story in Scripture. Will you fast forward generations later in 2 Kings? The people kept that. 
they kept that snake on a pole. I don't know why they would keep a snake on a pole because I'm terrified of snakes. I don't even want to look at a fake one. Okay, so like they kept the snake on the pole and they called it Nehushtan. You know what they did with Nehushtan? They worshipped it. Instead of worshipping the God who gave them freedom and help from the bite of the snake in the Old Testament, they worshipped the pole that the fake one was set on. We, we, we worship a lot of fake snakes in our day. A lot of crazy things that had original good intentions, but, but have eventually become nothing more than something that pulls us away from the God of Scripture. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes, belief is more than what you think it is, may have eternal life in him. What do we believe? We believe the truth from Scripture. What inspires us to follow the power of this eyewitness testimony and the reality of an encounter that we might have with Jesus? Paul summed up the gospel for us in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is it right here. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We go down to the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That word believe in every single one of those passages of Scripture is the Greek word pistuo. And it literally means such bold conviction of the truth, that thing that you believe in, that it changes everything about your life. It's belief that inspires trust. Trust is always an action. I trust you, so I'm going to follow you. I trust you, so I'm going to do what you say. Some have wondered later on whether or not Nicodemus actually believed what Jesus said. The conversation, like in chapter 3 with Jesus and Nicodemus, were kind of left hanging. It's a cliffhanger. It doesn't resolve well in the moment. There's no closure to what they are doing, but we, we do see him again in Scripture. So Jesus goes on to continue in this ministry performing miracles and, and teaching people about what it means to, to know and follow his Father in heaven. And just as Scripture prophesied from Old Testament before, he was ultimately betrayed, he was ultimately arrested, he was ultimately tried and falsely convicted of sin because he knew no sin. And he was hung on a cross to die a criminal's death. And when he died, he was pulled off that cross. And it was the Sabbath that was approaching, and they didn't want to leave bodies there. So they pulled him down in, in John chapter 19. It says later, a fellow named Joseph of Arimathea, we talk about him whenever we celebrate Easter. He asked Pilate if he could have the body of Jesus. And that says Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Coming to Jesus at night. I, 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 I follow Jesus, but I'm, I'm nervous about telling other people that I follow Jesus. It says with Pilate's permission, he came to take the body away. He was accompanied by, John chapter 19, you can read it. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus, this is cool. He brought with him a mixture of myrrh, aloes, about 75 
pounds of spices. That's a whole lot of spices. That's like a, an 11 year old's worth work, weight of spices. It says, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. People want to know if Nicodemus believed. I think so. Because in fulfilling these Jewish burial rites, bringing 75 pounds of expensive spices, it was currency in ancient times. 75 pounds was far more than what you would need to bury a criminal. 75 pounds was, was quadruple what you would need to bury just any other commonplace Jew. It was way more than you would need to bury even the most respected rabbi. You know what 75 pounds of spices was? It was what you used to bury a king. I think that Nicodemus believed that Jesus Christ died for him. And so the question for cultural Christians today, the question for real believers in Jesus Christ today is, do you believe, believe enough to follow that Jesus Christ died for you? It's all of us saying, what's our, what's our bottom line with Jesus? What, what, at the end of it, what's, what's, our, what's our bio with him? Do we, do we like him? Do we admire him? Do we respect him? Do we visit him a couple of times a, 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 a year? Do we visit him even a couple of times a month? Do we say nice things about him when we're asked? Do we vote in ways that show other people that we believe in Jesus? Or do we literally have a relationship with him that inspires us to follow him? Have our, have our lives been truly changed by an encounter with Jesus? This morning, we're really privileged to hear a testimony of, of, of someone who you may know whose life was truly changed by an encounter with Jesus. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. This is great. I feel like we're sitting at your house. Yeah, you know? This is my cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in the, this is AAA. You've been in the bigs for, in AAA and all the divisions for what, 16 years in baseball? So, in two World Series, and man, God's blessed you in your career and your season. Tell us about, though, your spiritual life. Tell us about kind of growing up and then what God's kind of done in your life since. Yeah, I grew up, you know, going to church, Christian, um, all throughout, you know, my middle ages. And then I started playing baseball. And unfortunately, I, you play baseball on Sunday. So I kind of got away from it a little bit and it kind of came back, kind of been, you know, teeter-tottering. And baseball for the longest time was my thing I worship. Like everything that my focus, everything was on playing because I wanted you know, to get draft, go to college, get drafted, make it to the big leagues, and then and then just that's everything. And it wasn't until later on in life to where I was like, man, there's a lot more of focus that I need to come to, to Jesus versus baseball. Because if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't have had baseball. But it took me a, a really hard time to really have that driven home. So, Stephen. You had a kind of a dark time in your life, and that's really where you came to Jesus. There was that come to Jesus kind of moment for you. Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's not easy to talk about it, but it's definitely something that, you know, I struggle with. You know, there was a time in my baseball career, you know, I've always wanted to take control and, and work hard, and everything was baseball my whole life. You know, my wife sacrificed everything for baseball. And then, you know, I, I got hurt. You know, I had a significant knee injury to where I had trouble even walking. And then I had a lot of marital issues, you know, and there were some things that me and Shannon were going through that, you know, nobody should want to go through. But, you know, I did. And I had godly men around me the whole time. And I just did what every man 
always tries to do and just says, I got this. No, I get, I'm going to control this, you know, and, and I, even though like I had these godly people telling me like, like, let us pray for you. Let us talk about it. Let's talk about it. Like men, we don't talk about things, especially when it comes to our feelings and our hardships. Like we want to always put on that armor of like, it's all good. Right. And then some things happen and, and it's something I'm not proud of, but I got arrested and sitting in that jail cell was like, the wow like it, is it really this bad like am I really at the rock bottom of all bottom I mean I was at the deepest part of my life both spiritually physically I mean I couldn't do a lot of things that I've done my whole life and that was when I was like man like I need Jesus more than ever and that was when I really was like all right I need to change some things and you know I always tell people I was like the person that really opened my eyes to Jesus was you, because you never knew me, and then you, you, you came, and when you showed up that day, I mean, it, it really opened my eyes. I'm like, man, like, that is the love of Christ, and that's something that I, you know, that I want to give to other people. Well, Stephen, you're doing that, man. I mean, you're, you're giving that to other people, and I've just watched you as a dad, as a husband, uh, as serving at church. Talk about what, what God's done in your life since, since that time, since that moment. I mean, it's been, it's been rocky. I mean, but I knew God has it. I know Jesus is like, he's, he's the center of my attention, you know, of my life to where, you know, like I got, I finally opened up to, to home groups. I gave my testimony that I've never done in my life. You know, I'm serving at church, which I've never done. And, it, and I love it. I mean, I'm at a more better spot, like spiritually, physically, mentally. You know, me and Shannon, you know, we're doing better than ever. Like, you know, my kids, I, you know, I've been able to spend a ton of time with them and ha have fun with them. And it's like, and there's still a lot of struggle and there's still a lot of, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but I've had so much peace about it. So what would you say to, to people out there about you know, when people are struggling or just trying to check out this whole Jesus thing, what, what encouragement would you give them about coming to Jesus and the difference God can ask, make in their life? Ask some questions, you know, find somebody that is a mentor, like find somebody that you feel like you can relate to, you know, like, I, you know, for me personally, like I want somebody to come talk to me because of something that they just see, like there's something different about him, you know, and like for people that are struggling, to find, you know, to find Jesus, or they got questions about who Jesus is. Does Jesus exist? Where'd the Bible come from? There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of literature out there. There's a lot of studies out there. There's a lot of people with a lot of knowledge that is not just biblical knowledge. Like there's actual archeological facts to prove the Bible and the truth behind the Bible and the truth behind Jesus. And there's so many things that you can do if you just would ask questions. Just start with like Nicodemus, you know, like a lot of people want to be Christians at night because they're afraid of how people think about it. And I've, I've been like that my whole life. Like, oh man, like, you know, it's like if I'm around Christians, like I'm going to be a Christian guy. But if I'm not, then I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be, of them, you know, try to fit in. And I still struggle with that today. But like for me, like I'm trying harder and harder every day to keep asking questions and just keep trying to learn everything I can. And that's, that's what I would, my advice would be to people is just, just start with the question of who's Jesus? Who is Jesus? And who are you because of Jesus? 
I invite you this morning to take the, the connection card that's been given to you, and if, I hope that you've already taken some time today to fill out the portion of information on the front that you want to share. And then on the back, it's a little different than our normal prayer request spot. There's still a space for those, and so any prayer requests that you have, list those down. We love nothing more than to pray together as a church, but at the top of it, there's some options, and there is a box for every single one of us. The first one is A that I am accepting Jesus Christ and his gift of salvation for the first time. And, and don't breeze past this, because there are always that idea of, of cultural Christianity. Oh, I did this when I was nine years old, Nick. I, I checked the box. I walked the aisle. I got dunked into some water. I said all the right words, but was it real? Did it literally change every single portion of your life from that day forward? And have you walked with Jesus. Not perfectly, because none of us are, but have you literally walked with Jesus? If not, then, then maybe today needs to be the day. We say, okay, this is it. No more playing games. No more cultural images of what it means to follow Christ. This is the real deal for me. I'll surrender my whole life and my whole will to following Christ. Number, or number, letter B is, I do believe in Jesus. But for whatever reason, I haven't taken that first step of believer's baptism, and it's time for me to be baptized. Maybe put that down. See, I'm a committed Christian. I'm committed to Jesus as disciple, and I'm living my life for him. Praise God. Just because you're living your life for him doesn't mean that there's a next, not a next step to take in him. So what is that next step? What is that next step of prayer? What is that next step of faith? What is that next step of witness and testimony and giving someone a picture of what it means to follow Jesus? Maybe there's a portion of your faith that you've been living out at night where nobody can see, but you're ready to bring it into the light where others can reflect and notice that this is what it means to truly follow Christ. Even committed Christians have a next step of faith. And D, please don't be afraid to put this one down. I don't know. I just don't know. I'm still at a place in my life where I don't know. I don't know if it's real. I don't know if what you people say is true, that he literally died and came back to life. I don't know if there was some big crazy conspiracy where, 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 where somebody robbed the body in the middle of the night and Nicodemus hid it somewhere and Joseph of Arimathea, he was in on it too. And that, like, I don't know if it's real. Just put it down. I don't know, but, I, but I'd like to talk to somebody about it because I'd love nothing more than to walk through Scripture's claims and the reality of what's true to show you that Jesus is real and he can totally change your life. We want you to know and follow Jesus. That's what Easter is about. That's what this whole church is about. That's what our faith is about. And without truly knowing and following Jesus, you are destined to hear the words, hey, depart from me. I don't know you. It's not enough to recognize Jesus. It's not enough to admire Jesus. It's about believing in Jesus and following him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to, to gather together and to worship on Easter and to recognize that this is more than a holiday and even more than a holy day. It's about the day that we follow Christ. And we know that if today doesn't matter, if today doesn't mean something, then no other day will either. So help us to believe. Help us to believe in you with a belief that promotes action and a willing desire to follow you wherever you lead. It's in your name that we pray today. Amen.
Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of our Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date with what's happening and ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.